0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We're back.
1: Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: has been a little while since we've released an episode.
1: Yeah, yeah, look, we're just very busy people, that's that's what's happening. It's not because people have cancelled on us or anything like that, it's, you know, very busy. <laughs> well, we're
0: busy and our guests are busy. That's right. Um, because we're We've committed to bringing you the best. That's right. See the best uh, in demand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we have thought we would take a short sabbatical, but we are back with an, another series of episodes.
1: Yes, that's um, right.
0: So you can look forward to that over the next, <laughs> the coming weeks. Yep. Um, but today we were lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Stefan Lund.
1: Yeah, and he um, is a social worker within the, the foster care area um, and is now an academic here at UWA, part of the, the social work group. Yeah. Um, so he has some very interesting insights over his career and, and academic career as well. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, yeah, we as you'll hear, we have a really good conversation that covers all of those aspects of his professional mm-hmm. life.
1: Mm-hmm. As well as some prior jobs, which yeah. was Cool.
0: <laughs> Which we'll, we'll let you listen to. But yeah. But yeah, we'll maybe pick up on those when we speak to you after our conversation. Yeah. Um, but without further ado, we'll let you enjoy our chat with Dr. Stefan Lund.
1: Yeah,
2: because I give them the expectations and the parameters, unless they go way out of that yeah.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Interesting. (laughs) We
0: could probably talk about uh, that sort of stuff all day. Yeah. (laughs) Talking about um, what we're here to talk about. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Stefan Lund to the podcast. Mm, Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, and it was really nice to get some feedback from you. you. You listened to a previous podcast that we did with Andy Kassim, so people might have listened to. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. I, I like your the style of your podcast and, and you've got a real variety of um, of guests. So, yeah, I yeah. always you know, wait for the next episode to be released. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, no, that's good. Well, we've had a
0: break for a couple of weeks. We have. So we, we have got – we're actually recording quite a few in the next um, two weeks. So, yeah, there'll be no shortage, hopefully. No yeah. Um yeah, so I've, what we normally do is, as you probably know, is we just get you to give us a bit of background about yourself, like your education and some of the work you've done. And I know you've come from practice, so it would be
2: interesting to talk about that a little bit. Mm. But yeah, do you just want to let us know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I uh, uh, have been in Perth since my teenage years. Um before that, I grew up overseas um, uh, in various places. Um, and yeah, uh, really, I guess, was unsure of where I wanted to head after finishing school. Um, did a BA um, here at UWA, which I really, really value and um, reflect on really positively. Um, then did what I call, you know, my apprenticeship for social work, which is working a variety of different jobs, probably the most significant, um, three years as a taxi driver, Mm -hmm. which is a terrific apprenticeship for social work, Mm -hmm. um, worked overseas and sweeping factory floors and working on summer camp and, um. Then my, uh, I came back to Australia and my sister said, you know, why don't you study social work? I think I could see you doing that. And uh, she's a really important role model for me. So I took her advice. And um, I think the day I was accepted, I also got a job in the field, like a, a, a pre-qualifying job um, at St. Mm-hmm. Vincent de Paul Society as a mm-hmm. youth worker. So I was kind of working full-time, studying part-time social work. Mm. And, um, yeah, kind of really, really felt at home as soon as I came to the social work, um, course was really welcomed and, and definitely knew it was for me you know, from then yeah. on. So we'll get into the social work practice, which is interesting, but I need to ask you about the taxi driving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure people listening want to know a bit more. Where, whereabouts yeah. did you do that? Uh, uh, yeah. So I was, I was living in Frio at the time. So my, my, my business was based down there yeah. and, um, I would uh, I would start at four in the morning and oh, try and get a um, an airport run. It was in the days where you could make good money taxi driving, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know you're your own boss. In summer, <laughs> I'd knock off a bit early and go to the beach, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a great lifestyle. And and you know from that, I was able to to I guess. Uh, work on my uh, how, how to read people, how yeah. to kind of use my discernment skills about mm-hmm. does this person actually want to talk or should I just kind of drive, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, someone wants to unload to you about something that's happened, you just listen um, and, you know, keeping yourself safe as well, I guess. Uh, yeah. That was another kind of thing, emotionally and physically safe as a taxi driver is a, is a tricky one.
1: Yeah. Did you have any memorable people?
2: Um, like People who are well-known. Oh,
1: no, uh, as in like, uh, I guess, a a taxi drive that was just very memorable for you, like – funny or interesting or weird or yeah, yeah.
2: lots I mean uh, I had a couple have sex in the back seat and when I picked them up from the oh, casino no. <laughs> um, and I had a guy this was really I felt it was quite interesting he was going to the airport to um, he was going to meet a, a manufacturer he, he developed a little puzzle game oh, and he, he cool. was you know kind of an entrepreneur and yeah. he, he gave me one of the puzzles when, when we finished the trip which I still have in my oh, that's cute. cupboard somewhere so he was all excited about, you know, a new kind of uh, big venture for himself. Mm. Um, other than that, I think the most memorable part was just um, people who, you know, just the, the day-to-day kind of mm. in the suburbs, you know, getting to know, you know, people going to the shops and why are you catching a cab? Well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm you know, not as independent as I used to be. And, and, you know, people who are surprised when you help them with their shopping bags to mm. the front door and, mm-hmm. you know, I guess that kind of stuff yeah. um, and just the... the The day to day struggles of people is kind of more in my memory than the individuals who who made an impression.
0: Yeah. I know that industry's changed a lot with uh, rideshare apps and Mm. whatnot, but I know taxi drivers are still the go to for people with disability and and these, you know, people, those sorts of users. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that service is still kind of appreciated. I do think they
1: tend to help more. I feel like rideshare you get in, you get out, yeah. see you later, that's it. Yeah.
2: Occasionally they might talk to you. Yeah, um, or they
1: might have like a water bottle there or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one
2: thing um, in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, how I used to, to run that is I would never toot my horn for a, a fair. I would always go to the door and knock. Because I, firstly, um, I just think it's courteous mm. and um, the horn tooting sounded mm. urgent, like, you know, right. come on, get out here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just felt like, you know, mm. they're going to pay me money. I want to start off on the right foot. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, yeah, think that's, that's a good, good approach. Yeah. Self <laughs> preservation. Yeah, <Self-preservation. laughs>
0: yeah <right>. pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the social work. So you, you did your training here at UWA,
2: I'm assuming. That's right. Social yeah, work degree. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and then how, how did that sort of continue from there? How did you end up in what you were doing?
2: So I had, uh, so in social work we do our field placements. So we we spend three to four months full time in an agency. And mm-hmm. um, the first placement agency I went into was uh, a foster care agency, Mercy Care. Mm-hmm. And uh, my uh, my supervisor then, uh, Francis Lynch, is still a really important mentor to me and a, a role model, and I think set the foundation for my interest in that area. And mm-hmm. uh, by a strange coincidence. Um, where I was placed, which is uh, Mercy at um, in Wembley, uh, used to be a foundling's home for um, uh, forced adoption. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out that my wife uh, was born there. Uh-huh. Um, so my wife was adopted. And so right. there was a strange kind of synergy there. And I, I, I don't, I'm not sort of all new age about, you know, the universe is telling me I need to be <laughs> a, a foster care social worker, but it was mm-hmm. a lovely coincidence. And, yeah, I had a really good opportunity to learn the importance of supporting children and young people who are not living with their families and it really struck a chord for me. So Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of a a really um, turning point for me in terms of my my career interest. And and you had met your wife by that stage? Yeah, we were together, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She was my girlfriend at that time and um, yeah. Uh, um, And so I think uh, with her adoption experience, it also gave me a a strong interest again in in, um, uh, children and young people who are not with their families. Yeah, yeah.
1: and so that because that was a placement and that turned into a job for you.
2: No, it didn't. No. no? So that was my first placement. Yeah, and then so I went back to uni, and then I did my second placement, uh, which was with uh, young homeless people mm-hmm. uh, in Northbridge. I set. I actually set up a service there called Passages, um, which oh, yeah. is still around today. Um, and yeah, then I. Uh, I guess um, <laughs> to be honest, I, I applied for a job. Um, I was working at St Vincent de Paul, but I, I applied for a job in, at Anglicare as a, um, a foster care social worker and um, was successful there. So, um, yeah, was uh, was kind of straight into the workforce after I graduated, which mm. was a real a real um, gift, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've got family members and um, friends that have worked at Passages and also at uh, Street Connect that's oh, yeah. done quite a bit of work with Passages yeah. and Anglicare as well. So. Yeah.
1: so what what does Passages do? What's the... So,
2: uh, really, I guess uh, the best way to describe it is a youth drop-in centre, kind oh, okay. of a, for street present young people, um, yep. offering, um, you know, informal counselling, um, they can wash their clothes, hang out there, get referral advice, mm. um, all kinds of um, uh, support, for particularly for young people who are, who are homeless or at risk of hardship or homelessness. Right, okay. Yeah, mm. yeah it's a really um, central part of the
0: the homeless response, I guess, in Perth. Yep. Uh, there's no young person in Perth that wouldn't know, know of
2: passages, I don't think. Mm, yeah. yeah. And they've got a, a place down in Mandurah now too, so they, oh, they've cool. expanded their service, which is terrific. Yeah, awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, interesting. And so uh, wh- how long did, did that career in, in social work last before you a- ended up in academia?
2: Um, yeah, so about 20 years I was in the field and, um, uh, yeah, and working mainly with families and children, young people um, around um, foster care, out of home care, transitioning from care. Um, yeah, went went from Anglicare to an agency called Wansley Family Services, which um, um, yeah uh, was a, was an awesome. Um, opportunity to kind of at a more senior level influence um what's going on in the sector and uh, policy mm-hmm. and um yeah so um sort of moved into kind of senior management positions yeah. there what, what are the needs of uh, people in those circumstances what, what day-to-day what are you mostly dealing with um, so, I guess the, the the overarching thing I would say is that those people, like foster carers, who are at the front line of caring, um, and also thinking about, uh, for example, disability support workers or aged care support workers, are the the, the least valued, the least recognised, the, the poorest trained people, dealing with the most difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. that for me was a strong um, impetus for uh, you know for for improving what we do to support those who are on the front line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, the key issues really are, you know, um, young people, children who are, who are abandoned, rejected, um, disconnected from culture and family, um, how do we help them make sense of where they are and how do we help the carers, um, how do we care for them so that they can do their best job, um, you know, with, with with a kind of a, as much wraparound support as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, So yeah, you know, there was never a dull day. There was always a new interesting crisis popping up and particularly (laughs) working with teenagers at Anglicare was an adolescent foster care program. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that was, uh, you know, there was, you really kept you on your toes and it was a 24 hour service. So, you know, on call you would deal with issues, um, you know, pretty tricky issues with with young people and, and, you know, what has happened to them and how they're responding to that. You mentioned being disconnected from culture so
0: that has implications of being quite an Aboriginal kind of concept in WA and I'm assuming
2: they're vastly overrepresented in that population. Yeah um, absolutely so um, Aboriginal young people and children make up about 55% of children in care and uh, they're only 3% of the population Um, so really big issues there and um, Although many of them are placed with kin, uh, kinship carers, um, quite a few are placed with non-Aboriginal carers, mm-hmm. and um, that was one thing we we tried to do really um, well at Wansley is to to um, equip our non-Aboriginal foster carers with the resources, with knowledge, with connections to to have um, elders, cultural leaders um, uh, to to consult with, and also to try and. Um, involve the um birth family as much as possible and to try and help the carers connect with families so that the young people and children would would kind of um be able to have those family members guide them mm. um, culturally and, and yeah. in their kinship uh, network
1: yeah how how well did that actually work like the the theory sounds good um, but mm. yeah did, did it actually work for for those kids
2: Um, It worked for quite a few. Uh, Can I give you an example of of where I think it worked really well? So a foster carer who um, had a, a a young child with her from up in the Pilbara um, and uh, the child's uh, first language was not English, and um, they would have um, they would often have a Skype, uh, um, you know, virtual meeting with family up there. Mm. And uh, the carer um, took it upon herself to learn the language, um, the child's language, mm. and then all her family members, all her household members, also learned that language. So the child was being raised bilingually, mm-hmm. and when they had those Skype meetings the child could show that they were learning language, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the carers could get involved with their knowledge of language. That's cool. And the carer would often, you know, in the school holidays, take take the child back to country um, at her own expense quite often um, and really... Try and keep that child as connected as possible to family, and of course we know that the country is 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 a, like a, a, a integral part of mm. uh, Aboriginal peoples' mm. uh, cultural um, uh, make up. So mm. that those trips back were really fundamental. So I, I guess I introduced that as kind of what I call maybe a best practice case study, and then yeah. we had yeah. a continuum of um, different, um, you know, different out outcomes and one thing that i am quite proud of is we established a resource library um, um, called cottage and Maya, um at wansley for all foster carers where we brought together resources um, from all across the state that carers could borrow at no cost mm-hmm. and take home and we also whenever we opened the library we'd have a cultural leader there in residence so carers could come in and the young people children could come in and the the elder was there to kind of um, uh, be there with them mm-hmm. and so that. That initiative which came from a foster carers idea was something we were able to put in place um, for and like I said, all foster carers across the across the state, regardless of what agency they're fostering with, were welcome. Yeah. So I thought that initiative was a good one from the carers.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting and it's quite topical. You know, at the moment there's a lot of talk about the Uluru statement from the heart and you know, recognition in the constitution for Aboriginal people. Mm. And one of the things that keeps coming up is that there's a second stolen generation happening at the yeah. moment due to these high rates of kids in out-of-home care. And I think that initiative like that is really, really does address one of the things, obviously there's a lot of things that are a problem with Aboriginal kids growing up out-of-home care, in out-of-home care, but that connection to culture is somewhat kind of preserved if you can get the language connection and, you know, show that they're actually still staying connected with their family and whatnot. They're not being indoctrinated into the <laughs> into some sort of Western religion yeah. or, you know, some of the things that happened in the past. Um, yeah, it's obviously not perfect, but it's something,
2: isn't it? We've got such a long way to go in that space. Like I've given you a couple of examples which I think are, are where it's working well um, but we don't, um, and, and this is where things are improving, like building capacity of Aboriginal controlled organisations to, to really um, take on the care of children, to mm-hmm. recruit within their community or or other carers who are, uh, are well equipped um, and, uh, you know, some great initiatives going on at the moment, the um, Aboriginal family-led decision-making which has now been funded as a pilot in two areas um, is is so exciting Um, you know we really need um, you know those Aboriginal agencies to take some um, control and to be um, to to have the capacity to to really work with their their children and families because they know the culture best and um, yeah it's exciting that there's something happening in that way
0: and do you think that there's been a quite a quite a good uptake from the aboriginal community a lot, a lot of people coming forward wanting to get involved and, and like from a you know kind of helping out point of view and a super, supervising point of view
2: um, yeah look definitely there's there's some agencies that are that are, are, are having great um, success in recruiting aboriginal workforce um Aboriginal foster carers are are, are difficult to recruit for a number of reasons. One, um, inherent distrust of welfare services uh, because of past practices. Um, And also that often um, Aboriginal families are already taking care of kin and they're Mm. already, you know, kind of, um, you know, their their caring capacity is is pretty much full. Um, And also one of the problems I think that exists is that the the, the way we assess foster carers is not always um, culturally um, safe right. or, or you know it really doesn't um, necessarily uh, uh, acknowledge uh, what's needed in in how how we would um, work with an Aboriginal family and also uh, Aboriginal f- um, people are more likely to have a criminal record um, mm-hmm. because of you know intergenerational trauma and the outcomes And so quite often there's shame around coming to an agency when they think they might not be um, accepted because of that. So those are some of the factors that are are in play. And I'm assuming that wouldn't preclude someone from being a carer. Uh, not necessarily. Yeah. No, I mean, if it's a you know historical uh, charge that doesn't involve um, you know violence towards people, for example, mm-hmm. um, there's definitely some discretion. Um, yeah. You know, there are some charges that mm-hmm. would. Uh, See, so yeah,
1: if they stole something twenty years ago or smoked weed uh, or something like that, that's then right. sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah.
0: yeah, okay. And so, do you think there there might may need to be a bit of a education campaign to let people know that that's the case and that they shouldn't
2: let that hold them back if they do feel like they can step forward and, and volunteer. A- absolutely, but but I think that needs to be um, timed with when we're confident that our system has a good response in terms of good um, culturally um, mm. safe assessment and the the. The resources and the infrastructure to mm. support those families I, I would hate families to come forward and then they have a bad experience or they don't have a good support crew mm. to help yeah. them out so it kind of needs to go hand in hand in hand with yeah. with the, the infrastructure there
0: so is there good aboriginal representation in the authorities that that are responsible for making those decisions and changing those practices mm. or not yet
1: i feel like you already know the answer <laughs> to
2: that <laughs> um, I, 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 I think uh, what I would say is certainly in, the, in my experience in the non-government sector, the, there's a growing sort of um, representation of strong Aboriginal um, leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, for example, I, I think in government they're, they're recognising that it's necessary and things are moving in the right direction. Okay. We might not be there yet, though, yep. as, as far as we need to be to get that leadership. So there's an awareness and hopefully an appetite to, to make it happen. There, there is yeah. in my mm-hmm. experience. Th- yeah. There is, and okay. and you know that the the government is putting their money where their mouth is. Like I said, with the Aboriginal family led decision making, that's a significant um, investment and in, uh, trying to do things differently. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting um, to hear some of your experiences mm. in practice. Um, yeah. So I was going to ask you. You ended up doing a PhD at some point. I'm assuming.
2: Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I ran into um, a, a, an academic who, who has, has been a career-long mentor for me, um, Dr. Maria Harrys, um at a restaurant one night. Um, and like Maria had always, she'd been uh, teaching me when I was an undergrad. And um, she said to me, oh, Stefan, when are you coming back to do a PhD? And, you know, the reason I'm telling you that story is that that is actually what prompted me to think about doing it and eventually come back to UWA Mm -hmm. and do that. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because my passion area of passion is foster care, that's the the subject I wanted to pursue because I wanted to be able to implement change that I was learning about in my workplace. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so 2008 I started that and… took me three thousand seven hundred and seventy-six days from start to finish because oh, no. you know working full time, yeah. uh, yeah, okay. raising a family, Yeah you know. So I, I say that with some pride that mm-hmm. you know I know that number because it was a you know it was a labour of love and a and a and a complicated long journey. Yeah. yeah. Um. But you know I lived my life during that time. I didn't put everything on hold mm. to do that study. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. No, that's
1: good. <laughs>
0: And, and what was it that you did your PhD on? Um, yeah.
2: So I was—I uh, did a, a study uh, called Connection and Relationships in Care. So I, I talked with foster carers. I interviewed foster carers, a qualitative research, about their experiences of, of helping young people um, integrate into their families and I guess really looking at um, how relationship is used in foster care and maybe how we need to prioritise it over some other... Um, some other kind of uh, elements of the foster care system. So, mm-hmm. yeah, really, um, I guess my the results I came up with was was what I call a new relationship based model of foster care, um, which was based on you know carers' experiences and, and knowledge and what they told me. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And what was like some of the general themes of the experiences that these people had.
2: Um, so uh, foster carers um, would often feel they're not part of something bigger. That's what they told mm. me, um, that they were quite isolated um, and that they saw the system as other. Ah, um, okay. And, you know, uh, yeah, really, I guess, uh, struggling with stuff a lot on their own Um Um, and with a lack of support, which is is not a surprise in the literature, but that relationships weren't prioritised. Right. So that, you know, um, if they needed some support from a caseworker, they might call up um, one week and then a month later they'd hear from someone else or um, they would, uh, you know... They would try and try and work on the relationship building between the child and care and their birth family, and that might not have been supported. So a whole lot of stuff around connection and relationship that that they said was missing. Um, yeah. Mm. Mm.
0: And did uh, that did your findings and your PhD kind of get fed back to policymakers? Or do you know if it's been in, informed any decisions or?
2: Well, um, the, the great thing about being able to work in the sector while studying is that it kind of all came through during the process. Mm. Do you know what Major, I mean? It yeah. was like osmosis. It was yeah. it was very difficult for me to separate these findings from what I was implementing in policy and mm. practice.
1: Mm. So you could kind of create your own change in your own work while you're going.
2: Yeah, yeah. That that was kind of how how it worked. And I also was was lucky enough to be able to present at some some um, big conferences internationally mm. um, to to disseminate some of those findings. I I do have to put my hand up though to say. Um, I actually haven't published any peer-reviewed articles from that research itself. <laughs> okay. yeah. which I'm not proud of. Um,
1: Sometimes it just happens that way. I think. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I, I am developing a training package out of that research mm-hmm. because I think that's kind of how I want to disseminate it: is to offer it to agencies mm-hmm. as an opportunity to learn about, you know, what the research shows, uh, you know, yeah. here in, in Australia about what foster care is, how foster care support could look.
0: Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, peer review is one avenue, peer review yeah. publication, but obviously, you know, the, it's becoming gradually a bit more accepted that influencing policy in other ways is is equally valuable.
2: So, yeah, I think what you're planning sounds really worthwhile. Makes sense. Yeah, um, I mean, someone senior here told me recently that 92% of peer-reviewed articles aren't even read or cited. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that was a big shock to me, and, and the message I was getting from them was impact can be broader than that. So that was... Yeah. A, a a great uh, message to hear.
0: There's a real mountain of um, submissions for peer review these days, like like an avalanche. And, yeah, yeah, I I review for a few journals in my area. And, yeah, the amount of times that you sort of are saying this is literally just somebody who had a a brain, a a thought bubble, Mm -hmm. and they've just thought, oh, this would be interesting to look at. And it's like there's (laughs) no actual rationale for it. it, Or, yes, I've got some data. I can analyse it and produce results. And you have to sort of say no this is not really contributing much to our p- <laughs> you the evidence uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas I think what you've done um, it'll be interesting to read your PhD I'm assuming it's available yeah through it's, the UWA. it's publicly yeah. available yeah yeah it's yeah. actually
2: been downloaded a lot of times and I think that's because I asked my students to download it to make my figures look better
1: <laughs> nice yeah yeah, get that fingerprint on your, your <laughs> right. UWA profile bigger. <laughs> so
2: thanks students <laughs> yeah how, how many students do you have uh, well, so, uh, in, in the, um, MSW course would typically have sort of about 70 in a class. Okay, That's Masters of Social Work. Masters of Social Work, Work. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. That's good because I'm just thinking about how, how our figures are going to get bolstered for listeners on the podcast. Ah, oh, you know, yeah, of
1: course. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can get you to <laughs> talk about this to your students and
0: you know, <laughs> get it's all about, the downloads up. All about metrics, right? That's, That's right. Yeah, we need to get, go up the list, <laughs> up the rankings. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do okay within the internal UWA rankings, but I'm not sure. I don't yeah, do uh, You know, towards. I
1: reckon we are the number one podcast for the School of Population <laughs> Global Health.
2: <laughs> yeah, the competition's fierce. That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm. you are setting the bar pretty high. Yeah,
1: that's
0: right. <laughs> so by my calculations, that's roughly 10 years it took you to yes, do. Yes, well done. Yeah. So you finished around 2018 if you started in 2018? 2018 2008. I graduated, yeah. yeah, mm. yeah. And so… Had you started lecturing by then or?
2: Uh, yeah, I'd, yeah. Uh, just as a guest lecturer. Okay. Um, so I'd, uh, I'd been approached by um, academics here to come in and talk about particularly my research and child mm-hmm. placement. So I kind of had a regular mm-hmm. gig, but um, yeah, just on the, you know, uh, ad hoc sort of basis. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I, I must say... I'd never thought of a career in academia. It wasn't really the reason I was doing it. And mm. that's not unusual in social work. Mm. Most, well, many social workers who, who you know, they've been in the field, they do their PhD. It's more because they've seen a gap or they, they want to kind of really um, consolidate some knowledge around the mm. area they're working in.
0: Yeah. So do you see yourself going back to practice at some point?
2: Well, I kind of still do. I've got my own consultancy um, Mm -hmm. where I kind of stay in touch and I still do foster care assessments and I do training in the field and Mm -hmm. um, help agencies with strategy and, um, you know, a variety of different things. Um, And I don't want to lose that Mm -hmm. um, because I think, um, you know, I don't want to kind of become an irrelevant, um, you know, crusty old um, mm. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> academic. That stereotypical yeah. picture, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it keeps you no. connected with the people that you're researching about as well and that I feel like mm. that connection is really important because then you, like, you know what they're going through. And it makes it so much clearer, mm. uh, yeah.
0: Absolutely. But those yeah. experiences change over time and mm. obviously keeping up to date with that is useful mm-hmm. and important. Uh, so there's there's bound to be some people listening who are either doing social work, like mm. wanting to do it or aspiring to be a social worker. And one of the things I've noticed from talking to people in the sector is that quite a few people do end up burning out from the work because mm. in some cases it can be quite stressful and um, the workloads can be pretty high. Mm. Do you have any advice for anyone as to how you've managed to cope with that and what your strategy was for dealing with that?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and I mean, I talk about this all the time with with our students. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is p- put your work in perspective, like where where is it with your, you know, within your whole life domain, and you know, someone uh, I think it was Mike Clare who used to be a, a head of social work here at UWA. I think he once said to us, "Once you become a social worker, it does, um, you know, become your life mm. in in terms of how you view things and how you look at systems." So. Um, it's dangerous to maybe get caught up in, in you know all of the dysfunction, all of the problems in society within work and then you know in your personal domain. I think it's important to say, well, you know, this is what I have control of in my life, in my work, um, this is what I can manage. And, of course, having all the um, professional and personal supports is a great benefit. Like um, we always say, like really good professional supervision is a must, for, particularly for new grads, mm-hmm. um, because it helps them put a container around what their work could and should be and what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I made the mistake that many others probably do in my first couple of years, working too many hours and mm-hmm. thinking that mm-hmm. I should be everything to everyone. So I guess that's something that I brought to students is, be reasonable about what you can achieve. Um, you know, be reasonable about your hours that you're actually working. And it's difficult, um, like these days, with you know your kind of twenty four seven availability yeah. to kind of put boundaries around that. But you know, we would tell staff, please turn your phones off um, when you finish for the day. If it's a work phone, turn it back on in the morning. Don't let um, you know the people you're working with be dependent on you. We have mm-hmm. systems that. Can, can step in, we have our on-call system, mm. we have a, mm-hmm. a duty system, it doesn't always have to be you, yeah. um, and as a new grad, you think it should be you, so yeah, mm. putting some boundaries around that is important.
1: That must be really tricky for, for students going in as well, because like, I, I guess the understanding i have is from medicine where it, it's it sounds very similar in that people particularly like junior doctors and think think that it's like they have to be there they have mm-hmm. to answer their their phone and all that kind of stuff and i know that um some of the people that i know you know they had doctors ringing them at 3am even if they weren't on call and all that kind of stuff so I feel like that kind of information could really be useful for more than just social work um, so how did that structure ended up being there for those students to like try and focus um, and not extend themselves too much do they actually follow that or do they just keep <laughs> going well you to know their yeah. <laughs>
2: everyone takes their own path yeah, and and comes to the acknowledgement at different times right yeah. um, so mm-hmm. You know, part of it is through mentoring, and so having someone that you look up to who does it well. Mm, And you know, mm -hmm. if you say, "Oh, look, they look like their life is kind of okay, and they're (laughs) they're not too jaded and cynical," maybe what are they doing? And so that was really important for me. I had some really great influential um, mentors in my early career that helped guide me there. Yeah. But sometimes you just you kind of have to make the mistakes to learn, right? And you, you learn so much more from that. than than if things go well all the time. So when you're feeling the symptoms and signs of burnout or vicarious traumatization or compassion fatigue, having someone that can can point that out to you, Mm. and and that certainly happened to me, Mm -hmm. um, and then reining it in before it becomes overwhelming. Um, And, you know, I I guess I'm also endlessly optimistic and I'm not sure where that comes from. I'm also realistic, but... You know, I, I'm hopeful and I've got a lot of protective factors around me and mm-hmm. I have through my life that help with that. So yeah. increasing those protective factors for people is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the lifestyle things and also the, the workplace culture that supports mm. it. Mm-hmm. Did, did you ever
0: come across, it sounds like you've had some good mentors and supervision over the years. Did you ever f- find yourself in a situation where you didn't and you felt like you, you needed a bit more? i do hear that from time to time yeah right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) probably um
2: well you know i I guess i've i've also been someone who's who's sorted out and has asked for it Mm -hmm. so if i yes i have been in a position where it hasn't been there and like for example when i was at one agency i wrote a policy that that really was around supervision and it was supported by the management which then Change the supervision culture in that agency, right. okay. but not everyone, uh, um, you know, uh, has that confidence mm. or that yeah. ability. And so, it's up to people like me who have been there to to help agencies to, uh, you know, ensure they understand that you know actually this is a great investment. You know, all mm. of these structures are not costs; they're investments. And yeah. I think we're now realizing that a bit more that you know that the training and and good supervision and supportive staff is actually, you know, saving us money down the track because mm. we're not having to, you know, replace staff. And I'm not saying that that's the case everywhere, but no. that's certainly been my experience. Yeah, you do hear of it at some agencies. Yeah. It's a, quite a high burnout and people,
0: you know, don't feel supported in the job sometimes. But then you hear stories about really great supervisors and, yeah. you know, managers and whatnot. So, mm. yeah, it be interesting. Mm. Yeah. So this is sort of... Um, led into what you're doing now, and I'm not sure how your research is structured, whether you're funded to do research, you know, by grants or or that sort of thing, or whether you're primarily supervising students, and and that's kind of your model for getting research done. How have you got that set up?
2: Yeah, so (laughs) I I did... Exactly what I was told not to do, which is like <laughs> spread yourself really thin, you know, get yourself on a lot of different teams and yep. do a, you know, a range of interesting things, which is probably why I haven't written up too much on my PhD findings. Um, so I'm on five different research teams oh, um, <laughs> on a range of different subjects <sighs> from um uh, working with uh, Lisa Wood in um, the homelessness space, mm-hmm. um, Karen Martin in Thoughtful Schools. I have recently got my first grant, um, which uh, was is uh, kind of an offshoot of Thoughtful Schools. So okay. that was something I negotiated myself. Congratulations! Uh, was thank that the education yeah, department? Or? No, it's a it's from a mining company. Okay. a Sponsored research oh, grant. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so so I'm quite excited about that, and I'm also helping out a, f- a couple of industry um, um, uh, agencies in evaluation and research, mm. Um, mm. and yeah, on another team doing uh, clinical simulation for allied health professionals, which is again someone you know brought me onto the team. Um, Done some work with Linda Slack Smith on oh, yeah. oral Dent- health, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so most of it's not funded, um, okay. or, or not funded through my own um, efforts, but yeah. others have kind of brought me on as mm. a as a junior research academic, I mm. guess. Um, so yeah, I, I love the variety of what I get to do, and I, I guess people tell me now now you've got a grant that kind of might help snowball to further yeah. um, further opportunities. Mm. So, mm. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping will happen.
0: What are you looking at as the offshoot for Thoughtful Schools? What's the project?
2: So it's the implementation of a similar model in the Midwest region, okay. um, up in Geraldton and, and around there, mm-hmm. but also linking in particularly with um, workforce development and um, Aboriginal kind of specific um, issues um, in school um, attainment and retention. Okay. So, yeah, so Karen's a uh, co-investigator with me on that. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we're taking it kind of up to the Midwest and, you know, doing some work up there.
0: That's, that's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, mm. hopefully. Yeah, there's obviously plenty of areas for improvement. So, yeah, plenty of uh, things to look at.
2: And, and you yeah. know, that, that whole education stuff, I mean, I, I've been very passionate about um, educational outcomes for young people in care. Mm. Um, and, in fact, um, the piece that I co-authored with a, with a student... Um, has been taken up by the education and, and child protection departments. Um, so I've, I've used that research, I guess, to try and impact on what's going on. And, yeah. and I'm actually presenting to all the education officers across the state in a couple of weeks' time to try and influence practice mm-hmm. and policy in that domain. So this is
0: a scoping review, did.
2: That's right, That's right yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little yeah. bit? Well, I mean... For those that work in the out-of-home care system, it's it's pretty well known that educational outcomes for children um, are below um, the cohort of, of kids who aren't in care. Mm-hmm. And so we were really trying to look at um, over the last 10 years, what, what is kind of the research saying um, about where we're at with that? And, um we were not surprised but we were disappointed to find that things haven't really shifted that much and that some of the key issues are, for example, that the care system and the education system don't work very well together, yeah. um, that we don't place high enough expectations on on children mm-hmm. um, so then their outcomes are, 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 um, are not as good as they could be. Um, and that we're, we're really not looking at um, how trauma-informed um, you know, education systems or, and, and the people that work in them are to, to identify that behaviour and to ameliorate some of the symptoms they see. So yeah, so I guess that that review helped us to kind of isolate some of the key issues for Australia um to to try and improve the educational outcomes and mm-hmm. of course um we know through research that education is is the pathway to improve future life opportunities, you know, a good um primary and secondary education and then post-secondary experience is is critical. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of uh, one of my commitments is is trying to influence the policy and, and systems change there to yeah. improve those outcomes. Mm.
1: Do you think a lot of um, foster kids or kids in um, the outer care uh, kind of end up just skating by in education because teachers don't really know what to do with them and then they just kind of like sit in class and sit back and don't? Actually, participate as much as they could, and is that like the area that you think could be focused on?
2: Th- that's a really key area, yeah. and, and I guess the way you've described it there is 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 yeah. pretty close to what I've seen. Um, you know, and and I, I actually I don't want to completely generalise because I've seen yeah. some elements of really good practice where teachers really um, get um, how to deal with um, you know that that sort of disconnection and that that young person's, um, uh, you know, trauma um, influence behaviour. But, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, I I acknowledge teachers are are super busy and and they are dealing with um, so many different issues in the classroom that 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 child who uh, just isn't able to focus, isn't able to kind of, um, you know, learn in the same way as some others does maybe go under the radar Mm. and... You know, then that just that maybe influences their antisocial behaviour. Then they might be suspended, and then you know there might be kind of a bit of a slippery slope there. Mm.
0: Just reflecting on my own experience growing up, a lot of my education happened outside of school. Mm. You know, Mm. through through family structure and also through social contacts. Um, You know, I played a lot of sports Mm. and ended up playing sports with people who were a bit older than me, and Mm. you know, obviously learned a lot from them. Is do you think that's one of the big pieces of the puzzle that's missing for a lot of these kids that are in out-of-home care, their, their family structure for a start is, has been unstable, and, and despite the
2: best efforts of foster carers and, and others... Yeah, and uh, I think that's that's spot on as well. And because, um, you know, foster care by its very nature is transient, so um, children and young people typically, um, you know, uh, if you look at the kind of average placement numbers, children are not staying in one place um, at, for, for their whole time in care. So then, you know, they're disconnected from another mm-hmm. community or another school, another uh, sporting club. And, you know... Uh, because of the turnover of staff as well, maybe no one's really holding on to the kind of the key um elements of, of well being for that child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a whole number of factors there where where the transience placement changes and uh, you know, the child's kind of um you know uh who's kind of the the key person watching out for that child and and progressing things so mm-hmm. yeah um young people and children in care are underrepresented in extracurricular activities mm-hmm. some because of um you know that they they're rejected they're abandoned they can't focus on too much more except the the you know the 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 impact of that on them so mm-hmm. you know schooling and sport maybe takes a back seat yeah
0: which is a real shame because mm-hmm. it's those are things that could really help, you know, if they felt up to it. Even socially
1: as well because it creates that group. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think having, like, at least one thing stable kind of makes more sense, whether it be school or family. So, Mm. like, even just getting one stable person in people's lives I think is, like –
2: yeah and and, and that's what young people in care tell us and uh, i just read another report from create which is the advocacy agency for children and young people in care and and really so many young people are just saying you know that one person made a difference because they fought for us they were consistent whether it was a carer or a social worker Mm. uh, or a family member Mm -hmm. and you know that person believed in us so like that mentoring Mm -hmm. you know that the person young person looked up to them they were with me through thick and thin um, and you know, I mean, that's—it's not a big surprise that that made a difference to that young mm-hmm. person. But there are not enough of those people yeah. there for mm-hmm. the children, right?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: I guess that sort of segues nicely into talking a little bit about home stretch. And I think you actually mm-hmm. did produce a paper with with Andy that got mm-hmm. published in—I forget the name. of It was of, in Parity. In Parity, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is a really. Great publication, actually. Yeah. Um. I've had a little bit published in there with Lisa. Wood. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So they do they do publish stuff that's. Uh,
0: what's the the premise for
2: parody is it about? So it's the council for homeless people. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. Based in Victoria, mm. and yeah, so issues in and around hardship and homelessness. Yeah. is How I kind of see it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. There's a lot of great articles on there. Um, for anyone who's interested. Um, (laughs) And and it's a practice-based journal too, so Mm. practitioners can also contribute, which is exciting Mm. as well. Yeah, makes it a bit more accessible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So you you had a piece called A Tale of Two Trials, which was looking at the home stretch, I think, wasn't it?
2: Um, Yeah, it was looking at at the whole um, issue of how um, we've... um, How we're helping young people transition from care and so when I was at Wansley, I I was helping to run the transition to independent adulthood trial, which Mm -hmm. was a a Commonwealth funded program to try and um, throw a lot of um, best practice support into um, a a trial of 80 young people who um, were identified as um, at, at, you know, at risk of of potential um, negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, we ran that trial from uh, the age of 16 through to 19. And so I was uh, putting some of the the findings from that trial and then some of the preliminary outcomes for the home stretch trial here in WA, which is a, a home stretch is a, an, it's really a national campaign to increase the um, the statutory age of, of um, child protection orders t- from 18 to 21 for those young people who want it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually been one of the most successful Campaigns, mm. in my experience, in our sector, it's really moved the system mm. um, to to kind of the to realise the importance of, of of that. Because of course, eighteen is a very young age to be kind of um, let go with with very little support. Yeah. Um, and it's unusual that a young person would leave home at eighteen now and mm. and right. and not come back. Well, I yeah. think the
1: average age of um, leaving home for the first time is like twenty five or something, yeah. twenty six now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like progressed mm. a lot yeah, later changed. in life things have yeah. changed
0: since 50 years ago mm. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so it kind
1: of just makes sense to increase the age to 21 for that it makes common sense yeah
2: and, and the research supports it so yeah. you know like why yeah. wouldn't we pay attention so so yeah i've been involved in in kind of that that uh, space for a while and been uh, on the home stretch, uh, guiding committee and really trying to push the agenda here. Yeah, and yeah, we've had some success here, which is is really um, great. And I'm sure Andy would have uh, uh, reflected a bit on that.
0: Yeah, no, he was quite positive about it and mm. and said that I think there had been a g- good amount of funding pledged to keep it going and expand upon it. I believe that's right. That right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So the government made an election commitment of. Um, million Mm -hmm. um, to really improve uh, the transitioning and and to lift the age to 21. And again, I say for those young people who want it, because there are some young people who don't want anything to do with (laughs) the department or the system after 18. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be choice and it needs to be uh, done in a way that um, we we use the evidence to say, well, what are the the different elements that are going to actually... you know, improve the outcomes for these children and mm. young people. So that's where the home stretch trial has been really exciting to be able to to test that evidence.
0: So is that, is that going to become optional for every young person the, the, uh, on the basis of that funding, or is is it just a select number?
2: Um, like I don't know that they haven't they haven't put too much detail there yet, and it's a relatively new um, mm-hmm. sort of um, uh, announcement. Um, But that is my understanding, is that it would be a universal um, policy Mm. for all young people leaving care. That's my understanding. Yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah. And do you have any any other reflections on home home stretch, any of your observations from being involved?
2: Um, Look, uh, my my observations are that, um, you know, I guess as a social worker, this is no surprise, but together we can really achieve... um, you know, great outcomes looking at systemic change and that, um, you know, getting a whole bunch of activists and people with influence, um, you know, like uh, Paul MacDonald, who's the CEO of Anglicare Victoria, mm-hmm. who really spearheads home Homestretch, um, you know, around an issue um, can, can really shift things. And, you know, that... I, I tell students about that all the time that you know there's some great examples of of activism and and uh lobbying that that it do achieve solid outcomes and you know that's kind of what we've seen with home stretch um, mm. and uh yeah it's been a really um <laughs> it's been a heavy kind of um social media campaign as well mm. you know with videos and images and research and so that has been a great use of those of those um those tools i think
0: it would be really interesting to do some work on um, campaigns and the success of campaigns mm. on different issues. Mm. Yeah, because I suspect that the general mood in the in the public is kind of one of sympathy and empathy for yeah. for that cohort of people because it's not through any choice of their own that they've ended up in that situation. because yeah. I do a lot of work with prisoners, and I suspect <laughs> that if we were campaigning for prisoners' rights and which we do, like health, you know, better healthcare and that sort of thing. Um, maybe we wouldn't get quite as much traction in the community and the support.
1: Need to find, like, the empathy pathway for for social media, for prisoners, I think. Because, again, uh, they're not all meant to be there. That's That's right. And
0: those two groups aren't mutually exclusive. No. A lot of people who've been in care end up in prison and, you know.
1: In, that might be the window. angle for you. Yeah. Yeah, focus That's on the foster kids that are in prison. <laughs> oh, no. And, and I mean, also <laughs>
2: another angle for you, of course, is like how many are on remand in prison that mm. haven't been – like that, that is a massive issue for our it's justice system, issue. right? Mm, yeah,
0: yeah, massive. <laughs> and and by very – by the fact that they're on remand, that, that precludes them from accessing certain services and supports mm. compared to sentenced prisoners. Mm. So, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's tough. It's one of those yeah. – Wicked problems, you know. Yeah. It definitely
1: yeah. does seem though. With um, getting actual things to happen, it's really multidisciplinary. Like it's not just research, it's not just policy, it's mm. not just lobbying. It's you really got to have everything in together. And it, yeah, it seems like Homestretch kind of managed to get little bits of everything to try and really push the issue, and they've they've mm. done that. So yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: kind of you did right, and you know, like it's easy to get on board with something that actually makes common sense mm-hmm. as well, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's a no-brainer. Yeah, really. you're like why yeah. has this not
1: been done <laughs> <That's> before? <laughs> yeah,
2: and, yeah,
0: and I think it's also introduced people who may not have been too familiar with it to the concept of mm. co-design mm. as well. Yep. So they can see that these things are designed by the people that they're intended to help. And, yeah. Um, so th- you know, makes them more relevant and mm. whatnot. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, I think we're probably coming towards the end of our conversation, Stefan. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss or raise before we before we sign off?
2: Um, just, I guess, finally, like that multidisciplinary stuff. Like, mm. I really strongly support that. And that, you know, um, whether it's uh, through research partnerships or, or industry and research and different universities, like, that's been my whole career has been, you know, who, who can we bring in? Who's like-minded? and you know I, I guess that is i guess the message that i would give to to people in the social work profession and and all allied health and and mm. associated professions that you know that multidisciplinary stuff can really can really change the mm. the lens through which we view things and um yeah, that that's kind of why I'm so kind of spread thin mm. with different researchers with different disciplines because it adds so much to my point of view. So yeah, yeah that's I guess where I see myself going forward is, is staying connected with a range of different people from different with different lenses. I think yeah.
0: I think you're all sort of guided
2: by the social determinants of health. Ultimately, that's
1: yeah. the thing
0: that underpins everything. Yeah,
1: you know. and everything's like connected. Yeah, it's all connected. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, I've had a couple of people ask like. Um, before we record um, particular episodes, I'm like, oh, I've got this person coming in for this particular area. And they're like, how does that relate to public health? I'm like, well, (laughs) let me tell you. And like (laughs) everything's connected. And I think, yeah, it's just so important to have those little different ideas because it can just highlight something that maybe you didn't think about. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's super important.
0: I think anyone that deals with people in some ways is dealing with health, you know. Exactly. In in the service industry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, thanks very much for your time, Stefan. Yeah, it's been great you. chatting. Mm, thanks and, very uh, much for having yeah, me. Yeah, we'll look forward to staying in touch and seeing what you get up to next. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you. And that was our conversation with Dr Stefan Lund.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic, I think. Um Very, very insightful into the areas that um, he's done his research in and and his career. Um, But also, taxi driver, just sounds fun, but also slightly scary. (laughs)
0: He's one of these people that's qualified in many ways. Yeah. Obviously, academically qualified, but also qualified by experience. Mm. And I think that really came through in our conversation. Absolutely. Uh,
1: Even like the beginning jobs that he chose is very people-oriented, yeah. and that's perfect for social work. Yeah. yeah,
0: and you just get the impression he's someone who enjoys being out, out in the world. Yeah, he, he li- exactly. He obviously likes working with people and trying to make the world a better place for people to grow up in and, and get on in. Yeah, uh, a very
1: positive attitude yeah. about it all, which is so necessary.
0: And he sort of alluded to the fact that he's involved with a lot of projects with a lot of different people, mm. and I, I know some of those people, and I know that they really appreciate him. And,
1: and Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You
0: know, his openness and um, how easy it is to work with. So, yeah. So yeah,
1: yeah, no, great yeah. conversation. Um, hope everyone else enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it was really, really good.
0: Yeah, and, uh, yeah, we'll as usual, you can get in touch with us if you like this episode or any of the other episodes. Yes, um, please contact us. If you didn't like them, maybe just hold your fire. Yeah, yeah we're, yeah. we're
1: not up for that right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: in, in the middle of a pandemic. That's so, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. we're both like trying to finish our PhDs here, you know. Exactly. Any form of bad advice, oh, terrible. <laughs> Don't want to put us
0: in, in a bad headspace. That's but, right. <laughs> um, but you can get us at meaningofhealthatoutlook.com or on Twitter, Courtney.
1: At health means what, so right. please talk to us. Good or bad is okay, um, but we would love to hear feedback from everyone. And if you've got people that you would like to hear on the podcast, or if you think yourself would be a, a great uh, conversation to have on here, we would we would love to hear from you as well.
0: Absolutely, um, but until next time, take care, and we'll speak with you soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.